0: And welcome to this special Patreon edition of the podcast, Shedding Candlelight on Cryptids, Hauntings, Mythology, and More. If it is weird, we are talking about it. This is your host, Lee Donna. And if you have not listened to my Mothman episode, you may want to pause this episode and go give that one a listen, because what we are covering today is the rest of the Mothman story, at least according to John Kill. If any of you, dear listeners, are hardcore John Kill fans, you might not be happy with this episode because it's going to be difficult for me not to sound like I'm ridiculing Kill. He's pretty arrogant, at least throughout his writing in his The Mothman Prophecies book. I was a bit taken aback when I was reading the book because Kill is incredibly insulting to anyone who has a different perspective or grounds to possibly poke holes in his stories. He continually paints these people as idiots who just can't possibly understand the complexities of what's going on. And when he doesn't track down that trail, he declares that people have nefarious intent. Kill does this all while marketing himself as not only a brilliant investigator, but going so far as to make himself the center of absolutely everything. The way he writes comes off to me as very narcissistic. Several times I had to pause for a minute to process what this man was getting at when he says things like, few modern UFO enthusiasts have the educational background to understand such literature. That statement in and of itself isn't bad until you couple it with the fact that he's tooting his own horn and using the statement I just quoted as a means to demean anyone who came out in opposition to him at the time. To be fair though, this book is his book and Kill does often make comments throughout about the goings-on being outlandish and unbelievable. He talks about getting caught up in the moment, but for the most part, I think he did believe all of what he wrote in his book happened as he described, with the intention being that it was basically all about him because he was one of the chosen ones, which he may well have been. I don't know. So I'm still mulling over a lot of the very bizarre things he wrote. It was hard to tell whether or not he later looks back on the situation and realized he'd sucked himself into the paranoia and let other humans mess with his head, or if he remained steadfast in believing it was all the work of what I'm going to call higher beings. So let's lay some groundwork because it might be helpful for all of us when it comes to understanding what John Kill himself actually believed, didn't believe, surmised, or maybe what he meant. First off, I mentioned in the Mothman episode the belief that water is conductively powerful when it comes to paranormal phenomenon, and that power seems to increase in areas where waters join, like the convergence of the Ohio and Kanawha rivers, which is where Point Pleasant is located. While John Kill took a set of events and linked them all together in his book, It's important to remember that cryptid creatures, UFO sightings, animal mutilations, all the things we're getting ready to talk about, they predate what Kill recorded in his book. They happen all over the world in similar places, and though people like to use the timeline Kill put forth in his book, these sightings didn't mysteriously end. A few groups I'll give a brief rundown on are Project Blue Book. This is the code name for the U.S. Air Force Project that systematically and scientifically studied UFOs trying to determine if they were a threat to national security. It officially ran from March 1952 through December 17, 1969, and was headquartered at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio. This base is only about two and a half hours from Point Pleasant by car. How long do you think it would take a military aircraft known or experimental to get from that base to Point Pleasant? I'm sure with the terrain of the Ohio River Valley, aircraft from Wright-Patterson did run maneuvers through that area, especially with other bases in and around Point Pleasant and along the Ohio River Valley. Next, there is NICAP, the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomenon that ran from the 1950s through the 1980s. It was based in Washington, and in the 1960s was more of a lobbyist group urging congressional UFO investigations. I do think this program is still running in some format today, but I didn't really look that up because the show is going to be long enough already, so I'm using Wikipedia dates. But after their end date, they have a remark that it's still active. I think what happened is the organization has changed focus over time. But this is not a show about NICAP. So they come up a couple of times. I just wanted to say what they were, at least in the 1960s. Men in Black. You watch the movie and it's probably a good rendition of what men in Black are supposed to be doing. But honestly, I get a little confused on if Kill believed these men in black to be human government controlled or alien controlled because Kill doesn't believe the UFOs are from outer space. He thinks the big conspiracy is that all paranormal encounters from flying saucers to Bigfoot are glimpses of things that have been here since the dawn of time, manipulating us Puny humans and putting ideas into our heads. So we're basically chasing our own tails while they distract us from the real issues. Basically, they are politicians because we all know that's what the politicians do. They are the ruling class, the top one percenters who use hot button talking points to detract people away from the fact that they, the politicians, are atrocious criminals who are destroying humanity. Anyway, Kill calls these men in Black impostors who wander around the U.S. causing paranoia in the flying saucer community, convincing people that the Air Force is investigating them, getting eyewitnesses to clam up and remain silent, and even going so far as to commit murder he says these men in black would pull off their capers without drawing attention to themselves if it weren't for small errors like dressing slightly out of date or in a style that wouldn't become fashionable until years later in addition to their questionable fashion they often drove old model cars which were as shiny and well-kept as new vehicles This is one of those things you wouldn't know the significance of unless you know a little something about fairies, because they are said to have issues with electronics. Therefore, in modern fiction literature, they often drive old vehicles devoid of the fancy gadgetry. Um, I basically am a fairy because I have a new vehicle that it just beeps and makes all kinds of noise, and I just want to go back to my old forerunner that has none of those bells and whistles um but kill talks about these fairies a lot because of certain similarities in lore that can tie into the paranormal sightings he discusses and he says that these minor issues with these men in black would be overlooked by witnesses but they stood out like signal flares to him Things like when these men in black pretended to be military personnel, they would lack military jargon and knowledge. When they pulled out notebooks, the books were always new, not worn the way Kill would expect the notebook of an investigator to be. He was a writer, so I think it's odd that he would pick on their notebooks because we writers love fresh, new, clean notebooks, Anyway, these men in black would also often collect souvenirs from the witnesses, which is something else that ties into the fairy lore. These men in black, according to Kill, had the same features described to him by UFO contactees who had conversed with the inhabitants of the UFOs. These are pointed features, Asian countenances, dusky skin, and unusually long fingers. I'm going to pause here to say that continually Kill says Oriental instead of Asian, mainly because of time and place. But I did also want to note that Kill writes about traveling through the Orient in the 1950s, meaning he traveled through Asia. He links things that happened to him in his travels through Asia to the CIA. You can read about that fun stuff for yourself. It was kind of interesting, but takes us completely away from Point Pleasant. So I'm not going to talk about that today. We're just going to move on. Another important thing to mention is that kill basically lumps all paranormal beings into the group of chimeras, saying that they come in all sizes and shapes, ranging from 20-foot giants to animated tin cans only a few inches in height but he says the most fascinating type of chimera is one that has appeared in almost every country on earth. In other ages, he was regarded as the devil. This devil dresses in black and he once rode a black horse. Later, he arrived in a black horse-drawn carriage. At other times, he came by hearse And today he steps out of flying saucers in remote fields. Kill says this devil being is built exactly like us, looks very human, stands from five, six to six foot tall with high cheekbones, unusually long fingers, and an oriental cast to his features. His complexion is olive or reddish. He speaks every language, sometimes mechanically as if he is reciting a memorized speech, and sometimes he speaks fluently. He has trouble breathing, often wheezing and gasping between words. He often leaves a few footprints behind, footprints which suddenly end as if he vanished into thin air. This is where Kiel gets into the ultra-terrestrials, which he describes as beings and forces which coexist with us but are on another time frame. He says flying saucers are not real in the sense that an airplane is real. They are transmortifications of energy under the control of some unknown extra-dimensional intelligence. This intelligence controls important events by manipulating specific humans. However, they don't want us to know the full nature of what they are. Kill explains what he means by giving the example that in 1475, if you saw a light in the sky, you would be convinced it was a witch with a lantern hanging from her broom. Now, these same lights are UFOs because the manipulative beings have programmed us to think that is what they are. Kill also reports that in 1966, he was in room 4C922 of the Pentagon harassing Lieutenant Colonel Mason M. Jax, whose job was to handle reporters inquiring about UFOs. Jax told Kill there is nothing to it, that it was all just a bunch of hearsay. This got them into an argument because Kill told the man he'd seen flying saucers himself. Apparently, Jax replied, are you calling an officer of the U.S. Air Force a liar? Later on, Jack's got a phone call on which he lowered his voice and said, I'll have to call you back. There's somebody here in my office that I've got to stop. Kilroy lays these exchanges because they tie in with his later theories after he begins to believe his phone is bugged and people are following him. These shenanigans being carried out by both ultra-terrestrials and human governments alike. Another tie-in is that Kill Says Jax told him that the Pentagon did not keep files on UFOs, that all of their reports were kept at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. A year later, Lloyd Mallon, a science writer, was given over 100 pictures from these files the Pentagon didn't have. Furthermore, Mort Young, a reporter with the New York Journal American, went to the Air Force Base and was told that not only were the reports kept in the Project Blue Book headquarters in Dayton, but at the Pentagon, as well as two other locations. The files Mort was allowed to look at were not well kept, though. They had missing pages and empty folders the Air Force's position was that an empty or missing file meant they have no information on the sighting in question. Mort wrote a piece for Kill to include in his book, concluding it with, I would rather try to explain a UFO than make sense out of an Air Force UFO report. By 1967, Jax had retired and his position was taken over by Lieutenant Colonel George P. Freeman. On February 15th, 1967, a confidential letter went out from the Pentagon to all commands, informing them that reports had been received, that eyewitnesses were being harassed by people claiming to be from the military, telling these people to keep their mouths shut and that they didn't see what they thought they saw, taking their photographs, etc. Basically, Freeman was alerting everyone about the Men in Black reports. The last bit of backstory that I feel like I need to add is about an incident that took place in Georgia in 1940. An engineer named Rex Ball swore he stumbled upon an underground installation manned by oriental looking men in coveralls and a few American military officers. When Ball was caught in the tunnels, one of the officers shouted, Make him look like a nut. Kill brings us up saying it's a tactic still used against eyewitnesses in the 1960s and 70s. And we all know that is certainly still the case today in 2023. However, because of recent revelations, maybe people are considered nuts just a teeny tiny little bit less. <laughs> What we are going to discuss today is not an exhaustive list of every recorded sighting or weird event in the Ohio River Valley in the 1960s, nor is it a complete list of the events Kill talks about in his book. As hard as this is going to be to get through, I'm going to attempt to focus on sightings in and around Point Pleasant, sightings Kill used to confirm his belief structure, going so far as to link everything to a prophecy that in my opinion had nothing to do with him or any prophecy. The creature known as Mothman existed long before Kill was ever born and the mix of sightings lumped in as Mothman in his book are most certainly different entities, animals, or beings. But somehow those sightings got labeled and stuck into Kill's mightily weaved web of UFOs and government cover-ups In the book, Kill Himself even notes that people were much more enamored with UFO sightings than anything concerning Mothman, and most of his book has to do with those other things, not Mothman. I wish I would have chosen to study the Ohio River Valley itself because then we could have recorded episodes based on what happened in this area month by month, and that would be more interesting, in my opinion. But alas, here we are. So let's get into this because something from Kill's writing that does seem to be fairly collaborated is that UFO activity reappears in the same areas over and over. Again, near water and even ancient Indian mounds, which do stand throughout the Ohio River Valley, we are still making discoveries around the world as far as the history of civilization is concerned. And here in the U.S., structures have been found to predate the Egyptian pyramids and even Stonehenge. I'm going to cover that in a future episode sometime, but when we find these things, there are similarities to other structures and civilizations around the world. This is something that feeds into Kill's idea that these flying saucers are not from a different world, but are part of ours, existing on a different timeline and able to bleed over into our reality in order to manipulate us for whatever reason they might have. There is also this theory that when you have a thought, it then exists in the ether and another person anywhere in the world can pick that up. My husband and I have this kind of synchronicity quite often actually. One of us is thinking about something and the other talks about it or buys whatever it is. The similarities in structures around the world are possibly because of the same kind of principle, but on a larger scale. The similarities could also be the influence of people traveling to different areas of the world because ancient people were smarter than they tend to be given credit for. I've never understood why that is, but we are now seeing new discoveries with the evidence that ancient people had technology and even great ships, and that they could easily travel the seas. So they were basically able to reach the ends of the earth, so to speak. This means there would have been ideas and culture being shared throughout the world. In 1897 in Sisterville, West Virginia, which is less than two hours from Point Pleasant, People were sharing information about the location of UFOs because there were so many reports of airships that local enthusiasts implemented a warning system calling each other on party lines to announce UFO to the Northeast. By 1880, there were 49,000 telephones in the United States. That's just an interesting fun fact to throw in because I couldn't remember when the telephone was invented, and it seemed odd to me that they would have party lines in 1897. But by then, telephones were actually pretty common. Okay, now we are moving into the 1966 and 67 sightings. In March 1966, Mrs. Kelly, a housewife who did not want kill using her real name, was waiting in her car for her children outside of the Point Pleasant Elementary School. She glanced skyward and saw an unbelievable apparition low in the sky. It looked like a glistening metal disc and was hovering directly above the playground. A door hung open at its rim and there was a man standing not in the doorway, but in midair outside the glistening disc. He wore a silvery, skin-tight costume and had very long silvery hair. He was looking intently down into the schoolyard. Mrs. Kelly's children bounded up to the car and in the split second when she looked at them and then back to the sky, the disc and the man had disappeared." That summer at a restaurant called Tiny's that sits on the outskirts of Point Pleasant on the corner of the street where the McDaniels live, the McDaniels being the parents of Linda Scarborough, which if you guys remember, Roger and Linda Scarborough were part of the people who saw Mothman at the very beginning, they were in the car um, with, with another married couple, Um, But anyway, the patrons of Tiny's saw a circular UFO object hovering in the sky. One of the eyewitnesses was the wife of a local police officer. However, no one bothered to report the sighting to the police. Later in the summer, Mary Heyer, the reporter we heard a lot about in the regular Mothman episode, was driving along the Ohio side of the river when she saw a sudden glint in the sky. She thought it was a plane, but then she got a better look and the object was perfectly round. In October of the same year, 1966, every night at around 8 p.m., a brilliant flashing light would cruise majestically over the Ohio River, traversing Point Pleasant from north to south. On the 7th of October, an attorney named John was driving along Route 66 with his young son. They were heading toward New Cumberland when they saw a light hovering near a hillside. The light started coming toward their car. John's son was scared, so John slowed down to keep them a good distance away from the totally silent object that had an outer circular light that glowed. John stopped his car completely, hoping to get a better look. The object started coming down over the highway, and John thought it was about 400 feet in the air. At one point, it looked as if there were windows in the craft and they could see a revolving light. The outer glow of the light made a fast flickering type of light as the object was hovering. They watched until the craft disappeared. This same October, Mrs. Kelly, who had seen the long-haired man treading air in a skin-tight suit, lived in a house along the edge of a goalie. Every night, she and her children would watch as blinding globes of light traveled close to the ground along the goalie. Her phone was also acting up, ringing when there was no one on the line, and sometimes emitting beeps like Morse code. On November 2nd or 3rd of 1966, a businesswoman was in the parking lot behind her office building in Gallup Police at around 7 or 8 in the evening, She was getting ready to head home when suddenly there was a little flash directly above her, like a camera flash going off. Then a flying machine landed in the parking lot, not 20 feet away from her. It was a big cylinder and did not make a sound. It just drifted down and stopped. Two men got out and approached her. They looked like normal men, only their skin was heavily tanned, and they had pointed noses and chins with high cheekbones. They wore coveralls, and she said there was an evil look about them that had her afraid they were going to rob or attack her. However, instead of having ill intent, they simply asked what her name was, where she was from, and what she did for a living. Sometimes it was hard for her to understand them because their voices were high-pitched and sing-songy. She said it was like listening to a record play at the wrong speed. Three or four times, these men asked what time it was, and then they walked back to their craft and left. She didn't tell anyone what happened, but a few days later, she read about a man in Parkersburg who had had the same encounter she had. Like the man she read about, she saw the devilish fairy spaceman again. They were walking down the street in Gallup Police in broad daylight. Only this time, they were dressed in normal clothes and looked just like anyone else. They nodded to her as they walked past and she got scared all over again. So she went to the police and told them her story, but said they laughed at her and told her she was imagining things. You see, this woman had a history with the police dating back to 1963, when she first began reporting what she called cattle wrestlers who would butcher cows in her field and only take the offal the bits like the organs, eyes, and tongues. She would see these people out in the fields and go after them with a shotgun. They were tall men in white suits who were very agile, so they always got away from her. Throughout 1963 and 64, she made these reports and even contacted the FBI when local authorities were not doing anything about it. But the thing was, no one could ever find any evidence of what she was reporting. During this time period, her home also burned to the ground. She built a new one on the same site, and one night in her new house, she woke unable to move. She felt a wave of overpowering heat and heard her locked kitchen door open. She then saw a tall figure walk through the kitchen and out another locked door. Once this thing was gone, she could move again. She told Kill that after all of this happened, her phone had been tapped. Her and her teenage children would also often hear footsteps on the roof and metal clanging. Kill said he went to check in with the police after she relayed her story, and he was told, That poor woman, she's always seeing things. Back to November 2nd, 1966. To put us in the time and place, this is one day after the National Guardsmen had seen the Birdman in the tree, which you might remember was just at the beginning of the main spree of Mothman sightings. On this night of November 2nd, two workmen were traveling Interstate 77 heading toward Point Pleasant from their job near Marietta, Ohio. As they neared Parkersburg, An elongated object appeared low in the chilly sky and descended directly in front of them. They had no choice but to stop, and when they did, a man emerged from the object. He wore a black coat and kept his arms folded with his hands out of sight under his armpits. They said he looked like a normal man, except he was grinning broadly. He walked toward them through the drizzling rain, and the men rolled down their window. The stranger asked who they were, where they were from, where they were going, and what time it was. They answered the questions, and then the grinning man walked back to the object, and it rose quickly into the sky. The men had a strong emotional reaction and debated whether or not they should tell anyone, deciding not to. However, one of them started having insomnia. If he fell asleep, he had nightmares, and this made him start drinking. So he finally went to the newspaper office and told Mary Heyer about the encounter. Two days later, the man's son called and asked her not to print the story. She didn't, but she did tell John Kill about the encounter. Kill then called the man who claimed he didn't want his name used because he didn't want to get, quote, involved in this thing. That scientist fella told me unquote. Since the man didn't finish his sentence, Kill asked what scientist. The man answered that a couple weeks after the encounter, a scientist from Ohio came to see them and told them it would be better if they forgot about the whole encounter. Kill asked how the scientist had found the eyewitness. The man had no idea. He also couldn't remember the scientist's name, but said the man seemed to know what he was talking about. On the very same night of November 2nd, on the very same road at around 7 p.m., an appliance salesman named Woodrow Derenberger was headed home from work. As reported in the previous encounter, the weather was cold and rainy. As Woody drove along Interstate 77 outside of Parkersburg, a sudden crash sounded in the back of his panel truck. He snapped on his interior lights and looked back a sewing machine had fallen off the top of the stereo. There didn't seem to be any damage though, so he kept driving. A car came up behind him and then passed him. Then another car that seemed to be following the first pulled up alongside him. Now, Woody had been speeding, so he let off the gas, worried this might be the law. In the night, all he could tell was that the car looked like a black blob. It passed him and cut over in front of him, slowing down. With the thing now illuminated in his headlights, what he could see, it wasn't a car at all, but something charcoal gray and shaped like, quote, an old-fashioned kerosene lamp chimney flaring at both ends, narrowing down to a small neck, and then enlarging in a great bulge in the center." The object turned sideways blocking the road and Woody slammed on his brakes stopping only eight or ten feet from it. A door slid open on the side and a man stepped out. The stranger was five foot ten with long dark hair combed straight back. He wore a dark top coat and underneath the coat Woody could see some kind of garment made of glistening greenish material almost metallic in appearance. The man's skin was heavily tanned, and he was grinning broadly, approaching with his arms crossed and his hands tucked under his armpits. Woody never heard the man speak audibly, but said he just had a feeling like he knew what the man was thinking. The man wanted Woody to roll down his window, so he did. Do not be afraid, the grinning man said without speaking We mean you no harm. I come from a country much less powerful than yours. He then asked Woody for Woody's name and in return told Woody, my name is cold. I sleep, breathe, and bleed even as you do. The man then nodded toward the lights of Parkersburg in the distance and asked what kind of place it was. Woody explained it was a city, a place for businesses and homes, cold said that in his world such places were called gatherings while this telepathic conversation was taking place the kerosene chimney-shaped object ascended and hovered some 40 or 50 feet above the road other cars came along and passed by weirder still was mr cold told woody to report the encounter to the authorities promising to come forward at a later date to confirm Woody's story, announcing that he would soon meet Woody again. Then the object descended, the door opened, cold entered it, and the object rose quickly and silently into the night. Woody was distraught when he got home, but his wife encouraged him to call the police, so he did. The Parkersburg police took the report and asked if he needed a doctor. The next day, Woody was questioned by both city and state police, and then his report hit the newspapers and the radio. Afterward, people came forward to say they had been on Interstate 77 the night of November 2nd, and they had, in fact, seen a panel truck like the one Woody was driving, stopped on the highway with a man standing outside of it talking to the driver. A, Mrs. Huggins and her two children were part of those witnesses. They drove through that stretch of road only minutes after Woody saw the object depart. Mrs. Huggins stopped her vehicle and her family watched the chimney-shaped object for themselves as it soared low over the highway. Another young man said the thing had scared him out of his wits when it hovered over his car and flashed a powerful blinding light down on him. Needless to say, people began to harass Woody showing up at the farm he was renting, calling him, and Woody even ended up getting those eerie electronic beeping noises on his phone. On November the 4th, Woody was riding with a coworker on Route 7 outside Parkersburg when he felt a tingling sensation in his forehead it was Mr. Cold projecting thoughts into his mind. In this transmission, Cold explained that he was from the planet Lanulos, which was in the galaxy of Ganymede. As an aside, Ganymede is also a moon of Jupiter. But Cold said this was the name of his galaxy and that the planet Lanulos was very like Earth, with flora, fauna, and seasons. But there was no war, poverty, hunger, or misery, and the life expectancy on Lanulos was 125 to 175 earth years. I'm assuming that's life expectancy for beings like Cold, who also said he was married to a lady named Kimmy and had two sons. When he finished telling Woody all these random facts, He told Woody to brace himself because withdrawal would be painful. Then Woody felt a sharp pain in his temple and nearly passed out. Two weeks later, two salesmen visited mineral wells and went from house to house. At one house, they offered Bibles and another hardware. And at a third, they said they were Mormon missionaries from Salem, Oregon, where a UFO wave happened to be taking place during the same year. One man was tall, blonde, and looked Scandinavian. His partner was short and slight with pointed features and a dark olive complexion. These men weren't actually trying to sell anything. They were asking questions about Woody, being particularly interested in opinions of the validity of Woody's alleged contact. And this begins the part where these beings swap their flying chimney for a black car. In this case, a Volkswagen. NICAP called Woody Daly, ordering him not to talk to anyone else about his experiences. But sadly, Woody's farm was beginning to look like the TNT area with streams of cars parking all over his rented property every night. Widespread rumors said the UFO was going to come back and land on the farm, so people sat there each night watching and waiting in the darkness. In the midst of all of that, a black Volkswagen drove up. A tanned man in a neat black suit got out, and he and Woody walked casually over to the edge of the porch. According to Woody, this man was Mr. Cold. He'd come to deliver a vial of medicine because Woody had been suffering from a stomach ailment. This vial of medicine cured his problem instantly. Another thing Mr. Cold gave Woody on this night was his first name, Indrid, I-N-D-R-I-D. I've heard people pronounce this as injured, um, so I'm not sure what the pronunciation from the spaceman is supposed to be, but I'm going to call him Indrid. This November, Kill was in Washington harassing the Air Force. His words, not mine. Gray Barker called him and told him about the bird with glowing red eyes chasing cars in Point Pleasant. So that's how Kill got involved in this whole thing. Now, we have to take a little detour out of Point Pleasant and pop over into New Jersey. As Succinctly as I can possibly say this, a family there had some encounters of all varieties. Later, one of them, whose name was Gwen, kept getting phone calls where someone asked for Gwen Stevens. Stevens was not her last name, and she told the caller this over and over. Then she repeated the phone calls to John Kill, who said, Eureka! They're not asking for Gwen Stevens. They are asking for Jen Stevens. Gwen did not know Jen Stevens, but Kill did because Jen Stevens was a fellow UFO investigator. And jumping not only out of West Virginia, but off of our timeline, we are going to fast forward to 1968 when the Stevens family had their home broken into after they made a sketch of a man they encountered who told them that people who look for UFOs should be very, very careful. They made two sketches of this man giving one to kill. And when their house was broken into, the only thing that was stolen was their copy of that sketch. Two months later in 1968, Jen Stevenson's husband died and Jen abandoned UFO investigations altogether. She never told Kill what happened to her husband. She would only say that it was related to the UFO research. Kill notes that no one tried to steal his copy of the sketch, and he showed it to men and Black witnesses over the years, and they said the usual response, which was, it looks close enough to be a brother. In 1967 and 68, Kill himself received heavy breathing type of phone calls and recorded a few of them, studying them more closely to find the sound to be more mechanical or electronic than human. The breathing he recorded was an evenly spaced series of pulses resembling the swishing sound of a phonograph when the needle reaches the end of the record. Now we are going back to West by God, Virginia in early December, 1966. Just about a month after Mr. Cold first appeared on Interstate 77, NICAP urged Woodrow Derenberger to submit to psychiatric and medical evaluations. He did. They were done at St. Joseph's Hospital in Parkersburg. The leading local psychiatrist who was part of the medical team concluded there was no evidence of abnormalities, no evidence of brain damage, seizures, epilepsy, or mental disorders. The reports were submitted to NICAP, but Kill said inexplicably the NICAP newsletter still claimed Woody's encounter to be a hoax. He also pointed out that Nycap spelled Colt's name wrong using K-U-L-D, which Kill says they mysteriously came up with on their own because Woody always spelled it C-O-L-D. When Kill arrived in Point Pleasant on December 7th, he first stopped at the Mason County Courthouse and spoke with Deputy Millard Halstead. He asked about the Birdman sightings and if there had been any UFO sightings. Millard said, no, we haven't had any of that, just the bird. That's enough. Hopefully you guys did listen to the Mothman episode and you know that on this very night, Kill went to the TNT area with a group of Mothman eyewitnesses. Mrs. Millette's bleeding ear and Kill's discovery of the Zone of Fear convinced him that UFO-type phenomenon was present in the TNT area, despite the lack of police reports. He asked Mary Heyer and the McDaniels, who again are Linda Scarberry's parents, to let him know about any rumors of sightings, and bing, bang, boom, within days, he had tracked down dozens of witnesses all of them real because Kill prided himself on keeping a low profile and not letting anyone know what he was doing in town. At least this is what he claims. The same way he claimed that he did not ask leading questions or go around advertising accounts that others could then copy. In some ways, I think he did intend to be above reproach, but there are clearly times when he just wasn't And he was also very obviously spreading ideas, facts are facts, Um, I'm just pointing them out. Anyway, on December 8th, 1966, at 2 a.m., a young man who lived along the Ohio River went into his bathroom and glanced out the window. This window faced the river and he saw a brilliantly illuminated circular object floating in the air just above the water. It appeared to have windows in it that were covered with curtains that looked like crumpled aluminum foil. Two hours later, at 4 a.m., 52 year old Charles Hearn, who lived on the Ohio side of the river directly across from the TNT area, was out walking his dog when he noticed a bright red light floating above the water on the opposite riverbank. He thought it was a boat, but then he saw that it was on the bank not on the water. Red and orange lights flashed on and off, one light directed toward the water most of the time. In the glare of these lights, Charles could see figures moving about, very small figures. Charles had lived on that riverbank since he was 12 years old and he had never seen anything like this. So he called his wife out and she rushed to a side, but neither of them could figure out what the little people were doing. So they woke up their neighbors and had that couple come out and watch the same thing they were staring at. Suddenly, the lights went out and a bright greenish light came on. The object then rose straight up into the air, disappearing into the night sky. Meanwhile, later this December in Parkersburg, the psychiatrist who was part of the team who had evaluated Woody was watching a football game on television when he was overcome by a strange sensation. A voice began to speak to him, announcing that it came from a spaceship somewhere overhead. Now, I am not exactly sure when this next bit happened, but Woody and his family went to Cape Kennedy at the invitation of a man identifying himself as Captain Bruce Parsons of the NASA Security Police at Cocoa Beach, Florida. By day, Woody and his family toured the facility, but each night Woody was taken to a room somewhere on the Cape and questioned for hours, covering every detail of his visits with injured cold. One of his interrogators was the head of NASA, a man identified only as Charlie. At the end of the week, they showed Woody a star map and pointed to a speck on it, telling him that's where they are from. These interrogators went on to tell Woody that they had interviewed many witnesses just like him, and they all had similar stories. Woody asked why then didn't they tell the public? the interrogators basically answered that they could not tell because we, the public, couldn't handle the truth. Panic would sweep the world, mostly it seems, because women would just go crazy, hurt themselves and their children. There is a theme in this book with Kill. I'm not saying he was a chauvinist. I think he makes a rather good case for that himself. To prove that he and his family were on this trip, Woody brought home pictures and souvenirs and even a piece of fabric like the kind the U.S. astronauts wore under their spacesuits, saying that was the type of material he saw under Mr. Cold's topcoat. Meanwhile, people or beings claiming to be census takers were making rounds, knocking on doors, and wanting to know how many children were in the home. Sometimes they'd only ask for a glass of water. One woman claimed to be Kill's secretary, which he said gave her instant access to the people because obviously his name carried a lot of weight, despite the fact that he was keeping such a low profile. This woman, who claimed to be his secretary, had people fill out long questionnaires, but Kill later had to break the sad news that he did not have a secretary. In January 1967, a small man of four foot six entered Mary Heyer's office. It was only 20 degrees outside, yet this man was wearing nothing but a short-sleeved blue shirt and blue trousers of a thin-looking material. His eyes were dark, deep set, covered with thick lensed glasses and remained fixed on Mary in an unflinching, hypnotic way. His black hair was long and cut squarely, like a bowl cut, and he was wearing odd shoes with very thick soles, which Mary thought probably added an inch or two to his height. Speaking in a low, halting voice, he asked Mary for directions to Welch, West Virginia. At first, she thought he had some sort of a speech impediment as he told her a long-winded story about his truck breaking down and him hitching a ride all the way from Detroit. As he talked, he inched closer and closer. It spooked her, so she went and got the circulation manager and the two of them spoke to the man together. She said this man seemed to know more about West Virginia than either of them did. When Mary's phone rang, she answered it. And while she was talking, the man picked up a ballpoint pen, examining it with amazement as if he'd never seen an ink pen before. She told him he could have it if he wanted it. And he responded with a loud, peculiar laugh, a kind of cackle, and ran out into the night, disappearing around a corner. Kill likens this behavior to something a fairy would do. On January the 19th of 1967 at 9.05 a.m., Tad Jones, an appliance store manager, is driving to work along the newly completed multi-lane highway Route 64, about 10 miles outside of Charleston. Up ahead of him, he sees a large object blocking the road. It's a large metal sphere hovering about four feet above the road. Since it was broad daylight, he got a good look at the object and described it as about 20 feet in diameter and the color of dull aluminum. It had four legs attached to it with caster-like wheels on the bottom of each one. There was a small window about nine inches in diameter on the side facing Mr. Jones but he couldn't see anything inside of the sphere. On the underside, there was something like a propeller. It was idling when he first drove up. Then it started spinning faster and the whole object began to rise upward. It disappeared into the sky and Mr. Jones drove on to his store, shaken and puzzled. He reported the encounter to the police and his story was printed in the paper. The next morning, he found a note under his door at his home in Dunbar written on notebook paper and in block letters. We know what you have seen, and we know that you have talked. You'd better keep your mouth shut. He decided, the same as I did, that the note had to be the work of some local prankster. Later the same day, in nearby St. Albans, Ralph Jarrett, a chemical engineer and the local UFO authority, received a telephone call where he heard a very clear beep, beep sound. The beeping continued for about two or three minutes. Then the phone went dead and the dial tone came on. Ralph said, I've heard all sorts of code transmissions on shortwave, but nothing quite like that. After he hung up the phone, he went downstairs and opened up his copy of the Charleston Gazette, where he read about Tad Jones's sighting. He then contacted Jones and did a thorough investigation, finding out that the location where Jones encountered the hovering object was a place where a major gas line passed under the road. A few days later, another note was slipped under Jones's door, this one a piece of cardboard that was burned around the edges. It had the same message as before, but added, there won't be another warning. Several weeks later, Kill was on the scene and questioned Jones, finding another incident the man had deemed unimportant at the time. About a week after his sighting, Jones saw a man standing beside the road in about the same location where the sphere had been. He assumed the man was hitchhiking. Jones slowed his truck and asked if the man wanted a lift. The man did not reply, but waved Jones on. The next morning, Jones saw the same man in the same place, but this time didn't bother to stop and ask if he wanted a ride. Jones said he was very tanned or his face was very flushed. He looked normal and was wearing a blue coat and a blue cap with a visor, something like a uniform. I noticed he was holding a box in his hand, some kind of instrument. It had a large dial on it, like a clock, and a wire ran from it to his other hand. Kill called the gas company to see if they'd had anyone out walking the line and also inquired about the instrument. The gas company denied both. Furthermore, John Kill and Mary Heyer visited this spot on Route 64 and found large dog tracks, something Kill had found in the TNT area as well. He dismissed them for large dog tracks but Jones took a plaster cast of the prints and none of the local wildlife authorities could identify them. Zoologist Ivan Sanderson later said they were not the tracks of a large dog and told Kill that similar tracks had popped up in places where paranormal events had occurred. So obviously we are talking hellhounds. But Kill himself later found more of these tracks in paranormal locations But on this day, the only other print found aside from the dog track was a single large human foot. So not hellhounds, but y'all, we have ourselves a werewolf. This print was in a muddy spot with no other prints around. But a short distance away, Kill found a print he was familiar with. One that had appeared at many UFO sites around the country. In short, years later, when the first men walked on the moon, Kill realized the photos of the prints left by their moon-walking shoes were identical to the footprints he had seen over and over again in his travels. A few days after Jen's sighting, a copy of True magazine hit the stands with an article of Kill's on flying saucers. It was illustrated with drawings, many of them replicas of the artist's imagination. One of them was an exact replica of Jones's sphere. The artist had produced the layout many weeks before, so was it a coincidence? Kill says the phenomenon mischievously duplicated the artist's conception. This is sort of related to that thoughts and ideas being released into the ether scenario or as Kill seems to think later on the result of these beings giving him confirmations of their existence by orchestrating this to happen. So basically he's saying the spacemen set up the artist to draw the craft and then they later came down in a craft looking exactly like the drawing just to prove they have insight into what's going to happen and the power to affect human behavior. It's okay if you're confused. I am too. In the spring of 1967, east of Ravenswood, a young couple was naked in the backseat of a car. At around 1030 p.m, a blinding bluish light poured in through the windows of their parked car. At first, I thought it was the police, the young man told Kill later. Then we both felt a funny tingling sensation that scared us both out of our wits. The boy jumped up and stared out into the light. It wasn't a flashlight or a spotlight. It was more like a big ball of bluish fire hovering a couple of feet off the ground directly alongside the car. There was a funny sound too, like a low hum. His girlfriend screamed and the light seemed to back away slightly while the humming increased in volume. The next thing they knew, the light was gone. Just like that, the boy said. We jumped into our clothes and got the heck out of there. When they got back into town, it was after 1230. The boy said they could not figure out the time difference because it felt like they only looked at the light for a couple of seconds, but instead it had been a couple of hours. The next morning, The boy and girl both awoke to find themselves sunburned from head to toe, and the boy's eyes were nearly swollen shut for two weeks. They couldn't explain to anyone how they managed to get severely sunburned in the middle of the night. Meanwhile, Woody Derenberger is having things stolen from his house, paperwork, tape recordings, and when he would drop mail into the post, it wouldn't reach its destination, Two men walked into the appliance store where he worked and said flatly, we think you know who we are, Mr. Derenberger. We'd advise you to forget all about what you've seen. Then they turned and left. Woody described them as short, stocky, olive complexions, and dressed in black suits. For some reason, Woody concluded the men in black were from the mafia And he moved several times in 1967, but said the men in black always found him. But despite the men in black harassing them, Woody's wife and two kids did meet injured cold and his companions. His wife said they frightened her and she was sure they were engaged in something evil. She told Kill they were just like us, driving around in ordinary automobiles and probably infiltrating The human race in large numbers. In March of 1967, the crowds had given up and Mr. Cold was finally able to land his spaceship on Woody's farm. He then ushered Woody aboard and took him on a flight all the way to Brazil and back. Woody described the inside of the craft as normal with bunks and equipment. Now, other people said the same things with these crafts being made from Earth products manufactured by Earth companies. Later in the same year, Woody was flown to Lanulos, a planet he described as a pleasant little planet where the people ran around nearly nude. Woody kept having these little adventures Later meeting the spaceships in isolated spots near a highway that was under construction or Cold or one of his companions would pick Woody up in a Volkswagen and drive him to a rendezvous point. No matter where Woody went and how many days he thought he was gone, it was never more than a few Earth hours. In addition to Mr. Cold, some of Woody's new friends were named Kimmy, Clennell, Demo, Ardo, and cletal names kill considered of the fairy variety two of woody's human friends also had an encounter with fairies jim hackett and his cousin darla were out sky watching at a place called boggle ridge or Bogle ridge when they saw a group of red green and white lights descend from the sky and drop into a goalie close to their position. A moment later, there was a bright flash and Jim felt his face tingling like a mild electric shock. Then he heard voices outside the car, voices Darla couldn't hear. Suddenly, there was a sharp knock on the window. A man holding some kind of red light stood outside the car and Jim received a mental message to get out of the car. He did. The man then asked, is she your wife? Jim said, no, she's my cousin. Then the man told Jim to tell Darla to stay in the car, so he did, and then the man led Jim off into the darkness. When Jim returned, his shoes, socks, and watch were missing. He said the man had taken them. Jim and Darla went to Woody's house and told him what happened. Woody went back to the scene of the crime with them the next night and found that Cold, Carl, Ardo, and Demo Hassan were waiting for them woody explained to these beings what had happened to jim the night before and the spaceman said jim and darla had encountered humanoids who were no good thieves the spaceman then promised to find these scoundrels and retrieve the stolen goods the next morning when jim stepped out of his front door he found his shoes all cleaned up sitting on a step with his laundered socks and watch inside Kill writes that during this time frame of 1966 and 67, a disturbing amount of canines went missing, some of them later found dead under strange circumstances. In the Mothman episode, we talked about Bandit, the German shepherd who disappeared, and maybe his had been the carcass Roger Scarberry saw on the edge of town. But Kill says not only dogs, but cows and horses were suddenly and mysteriously dying with surgical-like incisions in their throats and their bodies drained of blood. There was no blood on the grass or dirt where the animals were found, even when the bodies were found quickly and were still fresh. Now, animal disappearances and death does go hand-in-hand with UFO activity. Now, Kill theorizes these beings send out creatures like Mothman to draw people's attention away from the areas where they are mutilating these animals. Basically, as Smoke and Mirrors, um, a game of what he calls cosmic double talk, where there are complicated diversions meant to cover up some other activity like these beings stealing the blood of animals. Seeming to support the vampiric theories Kill was entertaining at the time, on March 5th, 1967, a Red Cross blood mobile was traveling Route 2, which runs parallel to the Ohio River. Bo Schertzer, who was 21, and a young nurse had been out all day collecting human blood donations, and now they were heading back to Huntington, with a van full of fresh blood. It was cold and dark and there was very little traffic. When they hit a particularly deserted stretch of highway, there was a flash in the woods on a nearby hill and a large white glow appeared. It rose slowly into the air and flew straight for their vehicle. Bo did not waste time. He was not going to stick around and find out what this thing was. He hit the gas, But the object effortlessly swooped over the van and stayed with it. Bo rolled down his window and looked up. The object was a few feet above the van and some kind of an arm extension was lowering from the luminous object. It's trying to get us, the nurse yelled as another arm dropped down on her side of the car. They described these arms as being like pinchers, trying to presumably wrap around the van and then lift them up. Headlights appeared on the horizon, and the object retracted its arms and hastily flew away. They drove to the police station, and their story was mentioned on the radio, but never hit the newspapers. Kill called the Red Cross and asked if any of their vehicles went missing, and he said that they thought he was nuts. But that only made him wonder if the only stories we hear are from the ones who got away, which as far as blood mobiles going missing, I'm sure we'd know about that. Humans going missing, it happens all the time and without the person or their vehicle ever being found. But the real question John Kill had was, did these beings really want that blood or was it only a sham to prove to him that they do in fact have an interest in blood. (laughs) On March 7th, 1967, Point Pleasant police officer Harold Harmon was making a routine patrol through the dismal, unlit TNT area when a dark object hovering a few feet above a pond caught his eye. It was definitely a solid machine of some kind, He saw what appeared to be windows in it and said it rocked unevenly like a boat hitting waves, and then it floated silently away over the trees. In the spring of 1967, the Colorado University UFO project headed by Dr. Edward Condon sent a team of scientists to spend a week in Pennsylvania observing the meandering nocturnal lights that busied themselves there nightly. Their conclusion was that the Pennsylvania skies were most remarkable. Also this year, ships in the Atlantic Ocean were reporting huge luminous cigars discharging small globes of light, which sailed toward New York and Long Island. Kill linked these balls of light to an object a family of seven had seen land in a field in Long Island. Two humanoids, or men, got out of the craft and walked across the field to meet a black car that had driven up just as the door to the craft opened. The beings got inside and the car drove off. Mary Heyer, our dear reporter, was receiving more UFO reports than she could print. Late in March of 1967, John Kill came back to what he called the Twilight Zone, bringing two men with him to Point Pleasant. Movie producer Daniel Drazen, who wanted to do a UFO special for the Public Broadcasting Laboratories, PBL, an educational network. I'm not sure if this is related to PBS. I've heard of PBS, not PBL. But anyway, you had Mr. Daniel, the filmmaker, and also a man named Don Australia, I have no idea who that is, but Kill said he told these men nothing. He just wanted them to experience things for themselves. Mary Hyer's phones were ringing off the hook day and night, even her unlisted numbers. And sometimes she'd get funny beeping sounds and she asked Kill had he ever gotten anything like that. Now, this is where Kill is adamant that he was keeping things to himself to keep pranksters from setting up hoaxes to curb rumors, and to prevent possible panic in the areas he was visiting. He also says some of the ideas he was studying were absurd on the surface, even to hardcore believers, so revealing them would only produce more gossip, controversy, and nonsense, like the vampire thing, but I love vampires, so I actually do hope that they exist. Prior to Kill and his two friends arriving in Point Pleasant, a young woman began to receive phone calls every day when she returned home from work at around 5 p.m. She would answer the phone, and a man would speak to her in a rapid fire language she could not understand. She thought it sounded something like Spanish, yet she didn't think it actually was Spanish. This young woman was disturbed and she called the phone company but they found nothing wrong with her line. Kill, while the young woman and his two companions watched, took apart her phone and found a tiny sliver of wood, something like a matchstick, sharpened at one end and covered in a substance that looked like graphite. The woman said no one had ever opened up her phone like that before, and Kill later showed the object to telephone engineers who said they'd never seen anything like it. Years later, while visiting a magic store because sleight of hand was one of Kill's hobbies, he glanced at a display of practical jokes and found a package filled with similar sticks. It was a load that would be put into a cigarette to make it explode, which led Kill to wonder how one of those had gotten into that Point Pleasant telephone. Hmm, mystery, guys. This young woman whose phone had the party trick inside of it was the daughter-in-law of a family living on Camp Connolly Road on the south edge of the TNT area. James Lilly was described as a no-nonsense riverboat captain who said it did not take him long to figure out that whenever his family's television started acting up, one of those mysterious lights was passing overhead. He said, I didn't think much of all the flying saucer talk until I started seeing them myself. You've got to believe your own eyes. At first, the lilies kept the sightings to themselves, but then rumors began to spread, and before long, carloads of people were gathering on Camp Connolly Road every night to watch the space people fly by. We've seen all kinds of things, Mary Lily said. Blue lights, green ones, red ones, things that change color... Some of them have been so low that we thought we could see diamond-shaped windows in them, and none of them make any noise at all. Automobiles near the Lily's home started to stall whenever the lights appeared, and the Lily's house became haunted soon after the lights began their nightly flyovers. It was a poltergeist-like phenomenon Kitchen cabinets would slam in the middle of the night, and once their living room door, which they had locked with both a chain and snap lock, were standing open when they woke up in the morning. They also heard loud metallic sounds like that of a pan falling. And Mrs. Lily heard a baby crying. She said it sounded so plain that she got up and looked around the house, even though she knew there was no baby there. It seemed to come from the living room only a few feet away from me, she said, which is super creepy. When Kill was interviewing this family, he asked a question he would always ask eyewitnesses. He wanted to know if they dreamed of a stranger in their house. Linda Lilly, who was 16 years old, said that this March of 1967, she'd been awoken to find a large figure towering over her bed. She said it was a big, broad man, But that she could not see his face, though she could see that he was grinning at her and appeared to be wearing a checkered shirt, which is significant because there are many sightings of these checkered shirt clad entities and Kill Himself wrote articles about them. When Linda saw the figure, she screamed out and she said that there was a man in her room. Her mother woke up and told her she was only dreaming, but Linda screamed again because the man walked around the bed and stood right over her. When she screamed that second time, she hid under the covers, and when she peeked out again, the man was gone. Linda ran into her mother's room screaming that there is a man in her room, and afterward, she refused to sleep in her room alone. Her dad had not been home on that night. He was working and later said that their family started just accepting these occurrences as part of their family's new normal. Kill, his two companions, and Mary Heyer were standing on a hilltop outside of Point Pleasant when Mary Heyer called their attention to a bright red light slowly moving toward them. It had the shimmering, prismatic appearance of a classic UFO light. Dan, the filmmaker, was a student pilot and agreed it wasn't a plane. It was a fairly clear night and no wing lights or tail lights were visible. The soundless light moved very slowly and appeared to be at a low altitude. They watched until the light was overtaken by cloud cover, never to reappear. Mary Heyer suggested that maybe it just flew straight up. Then suddenly, there was a distinctive drone of an airplane engine, and the obvious silhouette of a small plane emerged from the cloud, wings and tail lights flashing. It buzzed at an altitude of three or four thousand feet, and they all laughed at themselves for having mistaken this plane for a UFO. However, after Kill thought about it for a while, he decided things didn't quite add up he could not have been so mistaken. So he researched until he found some other sightings where flying saucers seemed to turn into conventional airplane configurations. Because Kill cannot be wrong, guys. Though he says sightings can be mistakes, he is a dog with a bone when it comes to his own. He wasn't letting the sighting go Because he seems to be slowly sliding into the dangerous territory by this point, maybe because he admittedly had money problems and people later accused him of hoaxing or blowing things out of proportion in order to get paid, which he vehemently denied. Maybe he was simply in an echo chamber and predisposed to believe his own ideas, I don't know because I wasn't even alive when all of this was happening, but you guys can read the book and decide for yourselves. Uh, Also, during this time frame throughout West Virginia, there were reports of unmarked gray plains hedge-hopping what Kill called the treacherous hills, which makes me laugh. I guess they can be treacherous, but we are not in the Rockies here. So anyway, Kill was aware that the West Virginia National Guard had such planes and that hedge hopping was part of their practice maneuvers as they worked on keeping below radar. But none of the flights the National Guard reported proved to kill that what people reported seeing was in fact the work of the National Guard. On March 31st, 1967, late in the afternoon a workman in the Point Pleasant Lumberyard saw a glowing object hovering over the home of Mrs. Doris DeWeese. Shortly afterward, Mrs. DeWeese watched a luminous object zip across the sky and crash into a small shack on a neighboring hillside. This shack housed the transmitter for Sheriff Johnson's police radio. The shack began to burn and the police and fire department rushed to the snow-covered hill and battled the blaze that left part of the hillside scorched. The transmitter inside the shack was not affected by the fire, but it was burned out as if it had been struck by lightning. Just this past winter, we had lightning and thunderstorms here, so the blaze and flash could have been lightning, but Kill does paint this as a direct attack because he says all hell broke loose the following week, and during this critical time, the sheriff's department was without its transmitter. With his filmmaker and friend in tow, Kill was making rounds and he was impressed by the testimony of residents in Gallipoli's Ferry, a couple of miles south of Point Pleasant along Route 2. So he decided he wanted to conduct his research in that quieter environment because Point Pleasant and the TNT area we're getting too crowded with all the people flocking there because of the stories Kill and Mary Hire were publishing. People in Gallipoli's Ferry reported light dimming and their televisions acting up late at night. And great blobs of light have been seen on top of the wooded, sparsely populated Chief Cornstalk hunting grounds just south of town. One resident was even having problems with poltergeist activity, lights moving through his house, knocking on the doors and windows, sounds of babies crying and women screaming. Again, I lived out in the middle of nowhere, West Virginia, as a child, and when Bobcat mating season hit, their screams would scare the hide right off of you. They sound exactly like women screaming bloody murder. But after the Radio Shack fire on the night of March the 31st, Kill and Officer Harold Harmon snuck off to Gallipoli's Ferry while everyone else went to the TNT area. Kill and Harmon saw a number of bright star-like objects flit across the sky with rapid zigzag movements. Two local teenagers were on a nearby hilltop sitting next to a roaring fire hoping to call the UFOs down to them. Kill shouted over and asked them to put out the fire because he knew the light would repel rather than call. Harmon was also having trouble with his police radio, and Kill says that this is because the UFOs were creating heavy magnetic interference, disrupting law enforcement's ability to communicate while the UFOs carried out their mysterious missions. He said telephones were out this week as well, as if half the fins in the river valley were out of service or clogged with the strange beeping noises. Kill left Officer Harmon and went with the two teens hiking through the woods in total darkness. After his eyes grew accustomed to said darkness, he saw purple shapes hovering over the woods of Roth Lee's property. When he flashed his six-celled light at one of the blobs, It jerked off to the side as if moving out of his beam of light. He repeated the experiment with the same effect. Then, for a control, he flashed his light up at the stars just to make sure it wasn't some trick of the eye. The stars, of course, did not jump out of his beam of light. Kill and the teens sat and watched the purple blobs for a few minutes when suddenly the entire valley below lit up and glowed with a bright, Eerie purple light. There were no houses or roads down there, and it would have been a long hike to get down and back. So the two teenage boys were reluctant to join Kill on this adventure. So the three of them just sat on the hillside where they were and watched the light until it faded away. The next night on April 1st, Kill and Mary Heyer drove up a five mile creek road below Gallipoli's Ferry until they reached a hillside that commanded a view of the valley he had watched the previous night. Mary Heyer pointed out a small reddish light low on the steep wooded hill south of their position. It was blinking on and off and bobbing up and down. It slowly circled the distant fields and woods and crossed in front of them, edging closer and closer. The object appeared to be square or rectangle. It disappeared behind some trees and reappeared much closer. It hovered about 50 feet off the ground, and the red glow was from a window through which Kill thought he could see a shadowy human. But Mary did not think it was a window at all, but a partition. This is the only point on which they disagreed. Kill got out of his car and flashed his light at the object. It shot straight up into the sky, the red light snuffing out completely. The next night, they returned to the same hill and saw many UFOs. Kill saying they were easily recognizable. Some were red flashers, some were cold purple blobs, and some were multicolored. Mary Heyer confirmed that they jumped out of the way of Kill's flashlight. He picked out a large one and made a series of flashes that he said told the craft to descend and descend it did, like a falling leaf, or as Mary Heyer put it, like it's going down a set of stairs. Apparently this object didn't land though, because the next thing John says is that Mary drove off and left him sitting in his car alone at around 1230. A little bit later at around 1:35, a clearly defined circular object zipped down from the sky and passed parallel to Kill's car. It was so colorful, with collars so brilliant, they didn't seem earthly, that it burned into his memory. The greenish upper surface was topped by a bright red light. There were reddish portholes or circular lights around the rim. It disappeared behind some trees to his left. He was afraid, so he locked his doors and debated whether or not the sizzling sound he'd heard had been real or not. The next day, his eyes were sore, red, and felt like they were full of sand. He had a mild case of conjunctivitis. On April the fifth, 1967, on Camp Connolly Road, the police and news reporters were holding court in James Lilly's front yard. He checked his watch at around 7 p.m., and sure enough, a brilliant white light came into view, arching overhead. The ship slowly soared past as it maneuvered toward Point Pleasant. Those parked along the road wanted to follow it, but their cars would not start. And as far as the news reporters, none of their camera equipment would work. During this time, Kill and Mary Heyer were on a hill and used a telescope to watch the UFO. It went down behind Mrs. Kelly's house. Mrs. Kelly said it had landed in her backyard many times, but they didn't want to tell anyone because they did not want their neighborhood to turn into the circus the other areas had. Her husband was an electrical engineer and was basically just mad about the whole situation because the night before this object had blown the tube on his brand new television. Afterward, whenever their telephone rang, the husband would cringe because it would be... Basically just a series of automatic code-like beeps of seemingly random sounds. So while John and Mary still in the hill watching after the light disappeared into the Kelly's backyard, they watched as a plane piloted by Doc Shaw flew around the area. Doc used to play jokes on people pretending to be a UFO, but there were over 1,000 UFO reports in the Ohio River Valley during this time, so all of them weren't him, even though he would kill his engines and coast for a while. But on this night, John and Mary saw a large black object telling the plane at a gap of about 100 feet. The prankster was being stalked by Mothman. (laughs) now kill outlines the wednesday phenomenon for a reporter saying that there is more activity on wednesdays and he also says that every night at 10 p.m there were lots of sightings he was going out taking groups of different women to these hilltops flashing his light at objects and on occasion getting responses from the objects he had Mary Heyer sign a sworn affidavit saying she had witnessed these things flashing back at kill, which seemed like an extreme measure, but he was really trying to document that everything he was saying was true. He also mentions that they were not watching tell lights because there weren't roads in the areas where he was seeing these lights. Again, as a child who grew up in the area being talked about, I know how dark it gets and how vehicles look when they are off on the distant mountains, zigzagging down a hillside. They do look like lights in the sky because it's so dark that you can't actually see the mountains in the distance. And these lights disappear and reappear, seem to shimmer if there are leaves and and things like that. Basically, all of the things some of these eyewitnesses say that they were seeing. But I do think it's interesting that Kill addresses this and says that it is not the case. Um, This is another long episode, so I won't tell you about all the times I was in a car curled up in the back window watching the night sky and all the trippy little moments when I was sure there was a UFO following us the rigs, the tractor trailers, those lights winding down the mountain are super freaky when it's that dark out. But um, it it's just something that I thought was interesting that Kill really wanted to bring up and say, nope, it wasn't car lights that we were seeing off in the distance. So to get us to our conclusion a little faster, I am now going to skip to where Kill says he became very secretive and would not even tell his closest friends where he was going because someone was following him. So even when Kill would stop by a random house, shortly after he arrived, the phone would ring and it would be that strange beeping. The homeowners would say they'd never had calls like that before and they would get those calls and the beeping until Kill left. He stopped at one house and the man ran him off with a shotgun before Kill could even say who he was. Mary Heyer went back there with them, and the farmer said that 10 minutes before Kill had arrived, he'd gotten a phone call from who he thought at the time was his neighbor, telling him not to talk to Kill. But then the farmer talked to his neighbor again later, and the farmer said that he had not been the one who called. This farmer then took Kill out to show him a 30 foot circle of scorched earth. The farmer said the night it happened, his cows had stampeded and ran right through an electric fence. The farmer ran out to see what the repus was, and he saw a big red and white glowing thing sitting in the field. He ran back inside, got his gun, and charged back outside, but the thing was gone. All that remained was the circle. His dog had ran off that night too, and they hadn't seen him since. There was an electrical box that had been burnt up like someone took a welding torch to it. The farmer said the next day a panel truck had shown up and some fellows that he thought were from the electric company fussed around with a transformer on a nearby power pole. He tried to talk to these men, but he said that they didn't say much and he didn't recognize them. He also noted that the truck wasn't marked like the other electrical trucks and that the men were in overalls and wore funny shoes with thick rubber soles. He said they were foreigners, quote, Japs or something, unquote. Mary commented that someone did not want the farmer talking to Kill, but Kill surmised it to be the other way around that they did want him to. Kill is beginning to fall into his paranoia here, saying that he picked this farmhouse at random, and if the man had simply turned him away, he would not have been back, but since the man shoot him away with a gun, it was a surefire way to get his attention. Because in his mind, the drama of that was easier than the man just talking to Kill on the first day when Kill went there. I mean, why couldn't the phone call have just said, hey, farmer, tell Kill everything. Anyway, John, Mary Heyer, Dan, the filmmaker, all of these people were being ambushed by picture-taking men with bright flashbulbs. Other eyewitnesses were dealing with the same thing. Mary Heyer and the Scarberries also started hearing the sound of a heartbeat at night. Roger Scarberry began dreaming of seeing a large eye floating over top Mary Heyer's house. Her husband and some others did see a UFO above her house, but she wasn't home at the time. And then there were the military men in buzz cuts, Cadillacs, and panel trucks who just seemed to be everywhere. After he left Point Pleasant, Kill returned to his home in New York, where he lived in a high rise in Manhattan. Outside of the wall of windows, he would see these blue flashes between the buildings and sometimes high in the sky or low, just kind of all over the place. When he had company, there were no flashes. He began to call them psychic flashes because after he'd see one, his phone would ring. He moved to a new location and didn't see these flashes again until 1971, but he did link this to a form of programming, saying that before a major event in his life, he would be plagued by inexplicable phenomenon, and that he interviewed others who say the same thing, leaving him to wonder if these are clues to a psychic force which controls all of us. Kill's vehicle was broken into while he was in Washington, and his briefcase, notebooks, recordings of eyewitness accounts, basically all of his proof of everything, except for Mary Heyer's affidavit, was stolen. They did not take his clothes or his cameras, and they even left his address book, which had been inside his briefcase. While this was happening to Kill, filmmaker Dan was in West Virginia trying to make a documentary, but his cameras kept malfunctioning. The people in his crew were having issues with their phones, and the film they did manage to record was ruined in a lab-gone-wrong situation back in New York. One of Dan's female producers was woken up by a loud beeping sound, and when she looked outside, there was a craft hovering outside her Brooklyn apartment. Kill diverges completely away from West Virginia at this point and ends up in this huge situation with a being named Apple who sends messages to Kill through a woman named Jane. There are some seemingly prophetic details being given, some things happening fairly closely to what was predicted, and others you have to kind of squint and turn your head a little to make the connection work. But eventually, Kill convinces himself that this is all real and that he only needs to think about a question, then his phone would ring and Jane would be giving him the answer via a poll. Kill says that other enthusiasts and contactees were getting the same sorts of glimpses into the future. He also says that he was receiving letters from people telling him that his contact information had been left for them or given to them by an Indian friend. This led Kill to believe that he was being manipulated by this higher power, them leading him to investigate what they wanted to be known. Furthermore, he said whenever he had an idea about something, even outlandish things, he'd receive a phone call or letter within days that confirmed and even added detail to what he had been pondering. He started thinking he was, in a way, manifesting these things, that some of the encounters people were having were arranged for his benefit, so he could then have something to investigate that would confirm his thoughts, those thoughts being programming from the higher beings who were just trying to convince him of something. It's basically just a big loop all coming from and circling back to John Kill himself. He began communicating with the beings through the contactees, asking the contactees questions for the beings, and then waiting for the beings to answer him back through the contactee. He didn't ask simple questions, though, because Kill said he was smart about these things. So he would ask questions that were simply too complicated for the contactees to understand, even if they were to spend hours in a library trying to look this stuff up. Therefore, they could not possibly make up the answers. Kill would also write letters to addresses that he later learned were non-existent. And the very next day, he would get answers written in big block letters. And he would also get phone calls from contactees who said the entity was present and wanted to speak to him themselves. So he got to talk to the beings on the phone. During this time, Kill was also having many phone problems with these strange beeps and also some of his non-UFO related mail was going missing or arriving days late. And when he got it, it would be opened. He was also getting phone calls from people describing whatever he was working on that he decided were hoaxes meant not to convince him of anything, but to let him know his every move was being watched. Then when he was on the phone having a conversation and he started talking about prophetic things that had been told to him, like some stuff about the Pope, static would fill the line. If he stopped talking about the off-limit stuff, the conversation was allowed to go on. He saw this as them controlling him even further ahead of one particular prophetic event. Kill loads his vehicle with flashlights, food, and bottled water. And then he drives out toward Mount Misery, which is where a lot of this uphold communication with him came from. Anyway, he stops to talk to a contactee along the way. And they said, hey, we've got a message for you. And the message was, Tell John we'll meet him later and we'll help him drink all that water. No one but him should have known what was in his truck. So Kill points this out as being an odd thing. Then Kill gets a random hotel and he picks it right in that moment. But when he goes inside, there are messages waiting for him at the front desk. He said all of the messages were nonsensical, meant only to prove to him that his movements were anticipated. So the event Kill stocked up for did not happen, and long story short, the contactees started talking about a new event that was going to take place in December of 1967. It was called the EM event. Now, Mary Heyer had an incident with some men in a Cadillac following her, and she called Kill about it. He told her they were not trying to harm her, that they were sending him a message, because it's all about Kill at this point. He does say that he hung up the phone and thought, they've done it. They've turned this boy into a raving paranoiac. After more phone calls, letters, and communications where tape recordings with contactees were nothing but static, Kill finally had a date for this EM event. It was going to happen on December 15th, 1967. By this time, a poll was as real to Kill as cold was to Woody. Kill never met this a pole or a pole in person, but argued with him on the phone and was aware of anger and a sense of humor. They would talk for hours at a time and Kill said that he felt sorry for a poll because it was clear that a poll did not know who or what he was. He was a prisoner of our timeframe and often confused past and future events. Kill said he was told that there was going to be a blackout on December 15th and that he was led to believe one of the plants along the Ohio River was going to blow up and people were going to die. He wrote to Mary Heyer on November 3rd saying he had reason to believe there was soon going to be a disaster in Point Pleasant, that a plant was either going to blow up or burn down. He told her a lot of people were going to be hurt, but that she could not even hint about it. Later, Kill gets more specifics about the EM event, now claiming to know that it is going to happen at 5 p.m. on the 15th when the president throws the switch to the lighthouse um, Christmas tree. I just want to point out that Kill was in Point Pleasant this November of 1967, and He had originally talked about this sense of dread and stuff like that that was going to be there. And in that part of his book, he mentions nothing about having knowledge of anything that's going to happen. He just kind of says that other people um, had a sense of dread and there were dreams and prophetic things happening to the people of Point Pleasant. But at this point in his book, he is saying that he himself has this knowledge. As we all know by this point, instead of a power outage, What happened on that day at 5 p.m. makes me teary-eyed no matter how many times I have to say this, but it is the Silver Bridge collapse. The Silver Bridge spanned the Ohio River into Point Pleasant. Um, What's interesting, I watched an interview with a man who was there during this time. I believe he was a child or maybe just a young man, but he said he was on the Ohio side of the river and that over there, it was perfectly still perfectly silent that all of the chaos and the recovery efforts and all of that it was all happening in point pleasant and so he spoke about being on the ohio side of the river and how odd and striking that difference was anyway because kill said he was told about the 15th being the day and something happening along the river he linked all the stuff that happened in point pleasant to prophecy and this is why Mothman has such a bad reputation, even though he's such a small part of Kill's book. (laughs) The more I learn, the less I know, Kill said. His glimpses of the future were secondhand and garbled either by design or accident. On page, page 296 of his book, he quotes a man who said, If there is a universal mind, must it be same? Paul and the others faded away, as did Woody, who divorced, remarried, and slipped out of the limelight into another state. I'm going to read to you parts of Kill's closing in his book. This would be pages 299-300. And this is a closing that Kill um, wrote and added to his book in 2001. (laughs) I was clearly meant to blunder into that little town in West Virginia and learn things that some men have known for centuries, but were afraid to ask. I warned Sheriff Johnson and Mary Heyer that this was folklore in the making. Gray Barker did try to turn it into a celestial fairy tale, making me decide to write this book and tell the truth as it happened. Now it is Hollywood's turn and they have managed to squeeze the basic truths into their film. Not an easy task, but the truth is always the most difficult thing to sell. Okay, guys, I did promise you a personal Mothman encounter. I'm sorry, I just had not rented the house and get this book because I forgot to have it in here with me when I went to record. So I'm out of breath now. Um, but I am going to attempt to record the mothman encounter that i had um with my husband since he was with me and he also has a friend who um, encountered a glowing red-eyed creature joe has also maybe seen a ufo or two so i'm going to try to record this probably in the car later and i plan to label that as patreon episode 5b so keep an eye out for that i have never recorded on my phone like that before so i don't know um we might have to wait a week or two until we get back to this room so I can record um, that conversation on my laptop, but I am going to try to do it for you guys. Um, I was actually supposed to be leaving town in 15 minutes, and I haven't even packed yet, so everybody is waiting for me. Um, the resources for today's show will be in the show notes. You guys know where to find me, leadonabooks.com, leadonabooks@gmail.com, at gmail.com, and some form of Leidonna on the socials. I will see you guys next time. Until then, keep your eyes on the sky, Immortal Monsters.